0: Welcome to the Living with Alzheimer's podcast. On this show, we share Ginger's journey and speak with subject matter experts about a variety of dementia-related topics. Ginger, a former English teacher and librarian, was diagnosed with Alzheimer's in 2019. This diagnosis has changed her world and has given her a unique perspective on life and living. I'm Krista, Ginger's son and full-time caregiver. I've created this podcast as a way to share the best practices I'm learning about caring for a person with dementia. Along the way, we'll document my mother's journey through her unique storytelling. You can subscribe to the Living with Alzheimer's podcast and find all the resources we discuss at LWALZ.com. In this episode, I speak with Amanda Leggett, Assistant Research Professor at the University of Michigan, about her research studying caregiving styles that help reduce stress and increase success for caregivers. She is working to develop measurements that can identify a caregiver's natural approach to caregiving so that a style modifications can be prescribed to help increase job satisfaction and reduce burnout. Then I speak with my friend Jordan Gilliam about his insights regarding self-care practices that can help caregivers improve their quality of life. And finally, we wrap up the conversation by talking to Ginger about her ideas for caregivers to take care of themselves. Well, good morning, Amanda. Uh, Welcome to Living with Alzheimer's podcast. I appreciate you joining us today.
1: Yeah, it's a real pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: Yeah, I'm glad that you could join. Um, I looked through your resume of research projects and found it daunting. It went <laughs> on for pages. <laughs> yeah. And... Um, I see that a lot of the research that you have done is related to mental health and aging. And I'm just really curious of all the research topics that are out there. And you uh-huh. as a research professor at University of Michigan,
2: uh-huh. what,
0: um, what made you choose this uh, you know, particular pursuit of research uh, path?
1: Yeah. So it's a little bit of a long and winding story as it probably is for many people. Um, but it actually goes back to high school. And when I was in high school, uh, it was time to get an actual job and kind of (laughs) start making a little money outside of school and, and learn, um, what the working life is like. And other than babysitting, which I had always done, um, so my parents kind of recommended i speak with a lady through our church who worked at a local assisted living facility um about whether there were any job possibilities there and so actually my first real job other than babysitting was working as a waitress in an assisted living facility about Mm. five minutes drive from my house okay And i learned really quickly that food services was not for me (laughs) i did not i did not like that part of the job but i absolutely loved the job otherwise um, mostly because of getting to know the residents that lived in this facility i it opened my eyes and my mind in many ways Um, my grandparents really on both sides um, and my family passed away when i was quite young so I didn't have any really strong relationships with older adults until I took this job and started to get to know these residents. So I just grew to know them, their quirks, their interests, and um, just all these things, and really um, enjoyed being with them so much. But also I think mental health challenges are just incredibly evident. In a setting such as a long-term care facility where you see right. like emerging cognitive difficulties you see um, depressive symptoms anxiety symptoms i mean it spans the gamut what you can see in these long-term care facilities and so i think intellectually my curiosity was piqued, but also my heartstrings were really pulled and i just kind of felt Um, this calling towards working with older adults. And as a high school student, I didn't really know what that meant or what that was gonna look like, but I knew I was interested in pursuing a career in aging. And I was really interested in some of those mental health challenges that I saw there. So when um, I went to college, I decided to major in psychology, because I knew I wanted to study aging, I knew I wanted to be in a helping profession of some sort. So psychology seemed like the right fit for me, and it definitely was. Um, And so that kind of started the path. Um, I was very fortunate in college to work with an academic advisor who was a gerontologist who did aging related work and she was a huge inspiration for me and i actually um in my junior year of college got the opportunity also to work with her husband who was a gerontologist at another university um, in, in charlotte where i was in college Um, in a research program for undergraduates. And so that was really my first exposure into studying aging related things through research, which kind of fueled my interest in pursuing graduate school. And then when I got to graduate school for my master's and PhD, um, I worked with um, a researcher who's really kind of a pioneer, very seminal researcher in the family caregiving space. And I think um, what drew me to him and the type of work that he did in family caregiving was even though I knew my calling, my heartstrings were pulling me towards aging and older adulthood, I also love children and I loved adolescents and I, I love, you know, working with all age groups and I think caregiving is a really interesting way to consider all age groups uh, because we see increasingly, we see spousal partners who are caregivers, but we see adult adult children who are caregivers. More and more commonly, we're seeing um, even grandchildren who are involved in the mix. So um, it was was an area of study that really focused on an aging-related issue, but brought all age groups to the table. And then it's also an area where these mental health challenges are really present, both on the side of the individual living with dementia, but also on the side of the caregivers and the stress that's involved in, in the caregiving role. So that's kind of the long winding story of how I ended up working in family caregiving research, but also the, the area of aging and mental health.
0: Yeah, that's very interesting how some of the exposures you had mm-hmm. uh, gave you insights onto what you did and didn't want to do.
1: Exactly. And, uh, if I hadn't had that job, I'm not sure right. I would be in this career, quite it, honestly. It's interesting. Yeah.
0: My my folks were in assisted living for about a year, and unfortunately, a lot of that was during the uh, beginnings of the pandemic, but... Yeah. The staff in the uh kitchen and the uh dining room
3: mm-hmm.
0: uh were a number of uh college students, young mm-hmm. and pursuing something related to medicine, some were in mm-hmm. nursing, some were in psychology, such as yourself. Mm-hmm. Um the chef was, you know, food service oriented, but most mm-hmm. of the rest of the staff was um pursuing something that was in caregiving. Right. And uh and they were fabulous. To, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, they interacted with the residents, um, you know, with, I think, a real care and concern that was personal and felt personal. And uh it made the, the character of meals completely different uh, yeah. because of how they interacted with the residents. So I really appreciated there.
1: That's great. Yeah, I'm glad you know, to hear that positive experience. I think it was a little bit different for me when I was in high school. I think most of my fellow high school coworkers in this mm. job didn't like the job at all. Okay. In fact, they realized they could go to Chili's and make you know, more in tips than we were making right. as a waitress at this assisted living right. facility. So for me, it kind of opened my eyes to like, wow, this is something that I'm drawn to and enjoy that most of the people around me weren't um, enjoying. And so it was also kind of opening my eyes to okay, hey, here's an area where maybe you have a particular interest and um, could pursue that other people around you aren't in in the same way. But yeah, I, I do. I agree with you. I also volunteer with hospice and there it's exactly as you described. I think a lot of the volunteers in hospice care are either individuals who have been directly impacted by the power of hospice care mm-hmm. or individuals who are interested in pursuing careers in nursing or medicine or aging and um, yeah, I really value um, those interactions, right? Mm-hmm.
0: So you've conducted a variety of research projects uh, related to topics like mental health issues and older adults, sleep, its relationship to mental health and cognition racial and ethnic disparities in caregiver health and now this care management style so along that path all this research that you've done what are some things that you've been surprised by as you've been doing those projects
1: yeah so the first one that comes to mind for me actually came out of my uh phd work in dementia caregiving, I was specifically in this study um, using my advisor's um, data, which was a study on adult day service utilization. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we were looking at kind of the daily impact of adult day service utilization on family caregivers' health and well being. So it was a neat design because we did kind of a daily diary over eight days study where some of the days the individual dementia would be attending day services and some of the days um, they would be at home and the caregiver would be actively providing care Um, and so my particular work in this was interested we collected some saliva samples and we were also looking at physiological health and reactivity to this day service utilization so My particular study was looking at um, the adult day service use, caregiver mood. Um, So we looked at anger and depressive symptoms, and then we were um, also considering uh, one of these biomarkers of the stress process, um, cortisol, salivary cortisol, uh, which gives um, us some better understanding of physiological stress. And so um, with with this cortisol, with the stress hormone, We see kind of a typical daily pattern. It kind of spikes in the morning and then declines throughout the day. Um, But we were seeing some maladaptive patterns in some of our caregivers who had higher um, depressive symptoms. So for example, um, we were seeing uh, what we would call a blunted pattern where we weren't seeing that adaptive rise in the morning or decline. We were seeing kind of flat levels across the day and some of our caregivers suggesting they didn't have that adaptive um, physiological response each morning to face the day. But What was really kind of surprising out of this is because we see this kind of daily or diurnal pattern um, in the stress biomarkers, people often will account for things like sleep um, in their uh, in their statistical models. And so I had done that just um, because of this physiological measure we were studying but then found that sleep was the most predictive thing in the model for our caregivers, depressive mood. So that was a huge surprise for me. I wasn't thinking about sleep Hmm. at all and put it in just to make sure we were accounting for it and definitely not anticipating it to be, the biggest predictor of the caregiver's mood. So that was an interesting thing that was totally unexpected, but that really kind of sent me down a path for a while of trying to understand that better and it is a whole area of research, but I think honestly understudied um, and underutilized in, in um, gerontological research, this fact that sleep is actually really highly correlated <laughs> with things like mood. Um, and it, one of the words that we use um, in research is kind of bi-directional, meaning like a bad night's sleep can lead to worse mood. If you have um, lower like mood, then you're not sleeping as well. Well, so it's it's cyclical in this sense. Um, so it just it, it maybe it's not a huge surprise when you hear me talking about this, but it wasn't something that was on my radar that I was thinking about. And yet I think it's a really important area, especially when you think about things like depression or anxiety or mood symptoms. and. In late life, um, older adults are often kind of reticent to talk about those things. They, you know, they don't want to talk about depressed mood or acknowledge that maybe they're having some of those symptoms but universally people want to talk about their sleep problems. (laughs) I find, uh, yeah, people are wanting help to sleep better. And so I really think sleep is a powerful area that can be utilized to, um, if we can improve sleep, we can enhance mood um, and help solve some other problems for people in a way that's maybe more comfortable for people to share or talk about. So, That's one thing that came to mind that, yeah, it doesn't probably sound surprising in retrospect, but for me at the time, it kind of changed my whole line of thinking for a while, and I was really interested in in sleep and um, mood in older adults. I think another thing that comes to mind maybe more recently is, and again, it shouldn't be surprising, but I'm continually amazed, maybe amazed is the better word, of how resilient caregivers can be, Mm. but also how much variability there is. So it's always fascinating and amazing to me that one stressor um, that just is completely overwhelming and consuming to one caregiver is absolutely nothing and easy to, to manage and handle for another caregiver. So I think the variability that we see between caregivers and how they manage caregiving tasks is really quite amazing but generally i'm very inspired um and again surprise is probably not quite the right word but maybe amazed at how resilient caregivers can be in facing these challenges. And we definitely see that in um, the work that you mentioned that I've been doing on the caregiving styles. We have been able to kind of profile caregivers in, into different styles. And there are a couple of styles um, that we've identified that are just incredibly adaptive in their care. And as they share their stories for me and some of the techniques that they use in their care, I just find it incredibly amazing the like innovation that people have um, that they bring to care. And I mean, these are people who maybe they were parents, but they are not professional caregivers like nurses or, mm-hmm. or anything like they don't have training <laughs> in caregiving mm-hmm. and yet um, are really so creative in approaches that they bring to care. So that's something that I guess in a positive way, I'm always surprised by hearing the ways that um, people are bring, able to bring their creativity to the caregiving role.
0: Mm. And so I'm assuming that some of those styles Mm -hmm. uh, of caregiving Mm -hmm. are natural to a person, you know, because you say they don't have training, but another individual who may not use that style but learns about it could incorporate that and find more success themselves possibly.
1: Exactly, exactly. That's what we're trying to understand better now. Um, There's definitely a style we call the nurturer that is this more natural caregiving type. It just comes more easily for these individuals. They have made maybe more mastery or self-efficacy that they bring to their caregiving Is just kind of part of who they are. But then we have another style um, that we call the adapters, and that's definitely like an acquired. Adaptability. Mm -hmm. So, in fact, um, when we identified these styles, we've looked at kind of um, differences between the different styles and demographic characteristics and caregiving constructs. And adapters, for example, on average have been providing care for seven years. So, they're really adaptive. They have a lot of different strategies that they bring to their caregiving, but it took them some time to get there Mm -hmm. seven years of providing care. And so, one of my interests and the interests of our team is how can we develop strategies? that are better tailored or targeted towards these different caregiving styles that might help someone develop this level of adaptability before seven years have elapsed. Can we help someone get there in year one or year two Mm -hmm. um, of caregiving? And then there's other styles that are less adaptable and uh, maybe throwing them right into this behavioral intervention where you're skill building and and working on different strategies is maybe not going to be a good initial fit. And so that's one of the goals of our work is kind of taking an understanding of how individuals approach care differently and using that to better tailor target our approaches to help them develop better adaptability over the course of caregiving.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. And that's one of the things that, you know, I've been discovering things over the past year, uh, cause I've been in the caregiving role officially, formally for a year, uh, and did some, uh, you know, previous to that as stopgap, mm-hmm. uh, as did my daughter. So there was a grandchildren have been involved mm-hmm. as well, you know, for my parents' care. Um, and, uh, you know, I've definitely had to shift style, uh, mm-hmm. in order for, me to feel like it's something I can sustain on a daily basis over right. and over again. Right. Mm-hmm. And that also fits for my mom. Thankfully, I only have one individual I have to mm-hmm. you know, uh, care for. And, and so I'm not, I'm assuming that some caregivers are doing multiple people and then
2: yeah. you know,
0: one thing that they do for one person doesn't necessarily work so well with another. Mm-hmm. Um, and, or they're dealing just with different challenges because of the, the affect of that individual and how they express uh, right. know, through their dementia and the symptoms mm-hmm. that they have. So, yeah, I just imagine that's a really complex uh, issue. And thankfully, I only have one person to focus on, uh, yeah. plus myself,
3: mm-hmm. you know, to,
0: to figure out what works well. So, mm-hmm. so Talking about that caregiving style, you you just recently received a, a research grant from Alzheimer's Association's Dementia Care um, Provider Roundtable to study different approaches on care um, health outcomes for caregivers and the patients. So, could you tell me more about what this research project and its goals are?
1: Definitely, yeah. So, this is um, I'll say this grant that I recently got. From the Alzheimer's Association is kind of a building off of a grant that I'm kind of wrapping up right now. So um, I had a five-year grant from the National Institute on Aging. Um, It's called a Career Development Award. So these are um, research grants specifically targeting early career researchers to kind of help build um, your research program and kind of get that off the ground as new faculty. So that's coming to an end for me, sadly, um, this summer. Um, But I've been fortunate to have that funding for five years and the goal of that work um, is kind of as i was describing before um, to understand and profile these caregiving styles we take kind of a cognitive behavioral approach so we're interested in the ways that caregivers are thinking about and understanding caregiving, but also a behavioral approach in terms of what are the strategies they're actively using when they're facing caregiving challenges. Mm -hmm. Um, And we looked at this through open-ended interviews, kind of like you and I are doing now, where we would ask caregivers about challenges that they face in their care and how they approached them. And literally they would walk us through these stories of a challenge that came up in their caregiving and kind of uh, describe for us why it was challenging, how they handled it, how they responded, what that looked like. Um, but also we have some, what we would call more like quantitative measures or questionnaires or scales where we have people rate like on a scale of one to five. Um, how frequently they use a behavioral strategy or how well they understand dementia and so forth. And so um, we we call this like a mixed method study where we're doing textual analysis, qualitative analysis, but also quantitative running like statistical models on these um, scale questions to really profile these caregiving styles. And in this study, Um, We're also interested in, can we map these styles on um, to outcomes? So is there a particular style that's at greater risk for caregiver burden or depressive symptoms or sleep um, problems, as we were talking about? And then how do these styles kind of change over time? So this is what I've been working on. For the past five years and we've been able to identify these styles like i said some um, with greater understanding of dementia greater adaptability and have more adaptive behavioral management strategies and then some um, that are a little more rigid maybe in their care approach have um, not as developed an understanding of dementia and its symptoms and and take behavioral approaches that are sometimes more maladaptive Um, and so we have been mapping these styles on to outcomes. Um, So for example, um, one of our styles that is more rigid, that uses more critical behavioral management responses, things like placing blame, occasionally yelling, um, criticizing the behavior. Um, This is a style that's associated with more negative outcomes um, for caregivers. I mean, we're also looking at individual with dementia outcomes, but these caregivers themselves are also experiencing greater stress Hmm. and burden. Um, and we also did, um, like I was describing earlier, we also did some saliva samples and we're actually seeing greater physiological stress in terms of that cortisol stress hormone and um, in, in this profile of caregiver in contrast with this style that's more naturally um, adaptable um, in their care and using more adaptive strategies, things like working as a team with the um, individual with dementia. So when a challenge comes up, are individuals working together to try and accomplish something um, using comfort or like diverting the attention when someone um, begins to feel stressed or agitated so um, we are seeing different outcomes and so as I was describing before I think the major goal of this work and the major interest here is to be able to take these style profiles and understand help caregivers a understand more about themselves and where they are in the care this can also be used by clinicians or community service agencies to also understand where caregivers are and then ultimately be able to better target and tailor our services and our approaches towards caregivers and these different styles so just as an example of this um, once we had developed these style profiles we did something that in research is called member checking. So you take these profiles, but then you go to kind of stakeholders. Um, In our case, we took these profiles to clinicians and our geriatric psychiatry clinics. So social workers, nurses, psychiatrists, et cetera, showed them the profiles and would ask, for example, like, do you you see these caregivers in your clinics? Like, are these ringing true to you? Um, And how would you kind of handle a clinic visit differently with caregivers and these different styles and whether people have like names to put to these styles or not it was really encouraging for us to see that the clinicians recognize these styles and were to some extent already tailoring Um, so for example a social worker I remember said to me oh this is the style that um, is really not successful in a support group they're just not there yet so if they show up in our support group it's not going to be effective or a, a you know a nurse would say, oh yeah, this is the style I love to dig into behavioral interventions with, and we can really problem solve um, with this group. So um, all that to say, this is exciting. We are um, really excited about the profiles that we found and the relevance that people are finding in them, and that we're seeing differences in outcomes. And so really the next step is can we actually measure these styles or assess these styles efficiently because um i'm using like fancy statistical models like one of the types of model we're using is like machine learning which is like a big data statistical approach that takes a lot of know-how and um skill to be able to run you need a lot of data, yeah. And so um, that's not gonna be good for a clinician maybe um, in, a, in a patient visit or in a visit with a caregiver to say like, let me you know, go run this um, statistical model to determine what type of caregiver you are. So um, this grant from the Alzheimer's Association, really grateful for it, because um, it is specifically a grant from one of their programs that is funding development of new measures and so this grant is building on this prior study where we've developed these profiles and now we're specifically trying to develop a questionnaire that caregivers themselves could take or that clinicians could use with caregivers again community service agencies might use to help kind of you could kind of think of this like if you think of like teenage magazines where there's quizzes and (laughs) it'll tell you like you're this type or you're this type or you're this type and people always love to take those those quizzes or at least I I remember we did as teenagers so it's something it's something similar to that where um people can take a short kind of 20-25 item um measure and then at the end it will give you a sense of at this moment in time this is the type of caregiving style that you are and based on this information we can extend our research to the intervention space, the community service space, et cetera. So there's like lots of utility that we see coming from this type of measure, but um, it takes a lot of work to do the proper procedures and protocol to actually develop um, to develop a measure. I mean, anyone could, sit down and write survey questions and make a measure. But Mm -hmm. this study is helping us to go through the proper protocol to have like an empirically validated um, assessment measure of the style. So that's what we're in the middle of now is developing this measure. So hopefully in future grants and future studies, we'll have it um, to more quickly identify style and and use it in various ways.
0: Yeah, I've uh, actually in my past life, uh, you know, doing customer experience, uh, there are any number of surveys that were, mm-hmm. written, uh, you know, during that time and, and the whole topic of what questions are relevant or helpful mm-hmm. to ask. And right. then how do you ask? Mm-hmm. Because all of that can influence your survey outcome and you can actually, you know, come out with results that aren't, aren't, uh, relevant you know Mm -hmm. because you didn't ask a good question to begin with so even writing a survey is is it's
1: hard yeah, yeah it's hard and you need items that will get at the variability between individuals it's like not a good item i mean it could be a very clear item but if everybody responds in the same way it's not helpful because you're not seeing that variability so that's um so we're going through the development of item process now and then the next step will be um to actually use this um these items with caregivers and kind of understand their decision making process um kind of doing like a interview with the caregivers and using these items and then we'll test we'll test them out um, on a large number of caregivers so we can determine which items are working the best to um...
0: so if I'm understanding correctly you want to get to the point of being able to have a a shortish survey Mm -hmm. that a caregiver can take Mm -hmm. that would give them a sense of where they are today right and and then I would think that the the desire would be for that caregiver to be able to, knowing that now, mm-hmm. where they can go, what they could develop, what tools they can add to their tool belt, uh, style exactly. shifts that they can make in order to have more success for themselves mm-hmm. and for the person they're caring for.
1: You've got it exactly right. Okay. Yeah, right. so we might be able to, you could, you could envision, for example, down the line in one of our Alzheimer's um, clinics, Having, um, so just kind of like if, if you get a, a diagnosis of dementia, there's mm-hmm. a variety of diagnoses, right? And there's different things you need to understand about each one. So, similar, so you might like, let's say you get a diagnosis of Lewy body dementia mm-hmm. from the clinic, they'll probably send you home with a packet that's specific to Lewy body dementia. Because if they send you home with the vascular dementia packet, it's not going to be as helpful right. for you, right? right? So, similar sort of thing, you could see how how we could give this um, inventory to a caregiver and be able to give them resources that are kind of aligned best with where they are in that mm-hmm. moment um, and what sort of interventions or services might be most beneficial for them to utilize. Um, so,
0: so one of the words you used before about a style was more rigid. Mm-hmm. and So I'm assuming that if m- my survey came back and showed that I had a more rigid style, Mm -hmm. the hope would be to figure out how to loosen up and get be more um what was the other one adaptable
1: Yeah. yeah And so definitely. And I mean, one thing I think it's important to acknowledge, though, is that um, all individuals are different. And Mm -hmm. some of this, um, we are seeing some associations, for example, with personality and coping style. And so there is maybe a question of how much can people change and how much are people just going to like, what is what is state like, what is trait like, <laughs> if right, you're right. familiar with that. So what what is going to be stable regardless and what is amenable to change? So that's something we're tr- we're still trying to understand. Um, And, you know, in some sense, some people are the way they are. Um, and some aspects of of who that who they are may not change as much, but I think we can still. I think there are still aspects that we can help caregivers with, especially someone who is um, maybe more rigid. They may never become the like natural, self efficacious caregiver type, but we may be able to help them, like add more tools in their chest that can reduce some of that stress or work with them to um, be willing to receive outside help or utilize a service like an adult day that gives them a reduction in their stress and gives stimulation to the individuals living with dementia so mm-hmm. yeah so I I do you know acknowledge there are some facets of this that may not change as much but I do believe that and we are seeing over over time that people um their approaches do change and some of that has to do with the individual with dementia changing as right. um this their symptoms change over time and each day is different too so it's a uh, um it's a moving, it's a moving thing. But yes, our our hope would be that we could um, approach these individuals in the way that's going to be most efficacious for them, right. acknowledging that caregivers are different. And one size fits all approaches um, can sometimes be harmful and, and not helpful. Um, if an individual is not ready for that type of, of support. Right. And right. I think another thing I like to always say too, is Um, there's not a bad style and there's not a best style. I think each one of these styles has strengths and room for growth. Mm -hmm. And so it's also helping individuals acknowledge what are the strengths of what are you doing well? And what are areas that you could work on to improve that are going to reduce your own stress and help you provide the best care?
0: Right. I know one of the things that helped me, and it, it happened fairly early on. Um, the The uh, approach that I was initially taking was just patterned off of the parenting that I had done, and and mm-hmm. my role as an a educator, because I had, uh, you know, taught high school for years as well, and the the perspective there is the child that you're parenting or the student that you're instructing have this opportunity for growth. And you have this expectation as the caregiver or the teacher that the behavior or the knowledge or the skill will increase and improve. Mm-hmm. And that's not the case with the person with dementia. The, right. That, there's not this hope that the skill set that they have is going to keep increasing. It's going to decline as their mm-hmm. brain function declines, and uh, so I had this uh, situation where my mom and I had done a flower bed with a bunch of annuals. Most of her stuff is perennials, so it comes mm-hmm. back each year, and you just have to, you know, do some tending to it. But with the annuals, they're more fussy. Mm-hmm. They're beautiful, mm-hmm. um, but you know, if you don't get the light and the water and all this right you're not going to have success and so I was having to kind of take charge of that um because my mom would forget steps mm-hmm. um she really wanted the beautiful product but she didn't always remember what needed to be done or not done right and uh so anyway one day I let her just fuss around and when I came back like an hour mm-hmm. later she had pulled a whole bunch of the annuals out I mean they were just mm-hmm. nice. they were toast. Yeah, and my response was upset. Mm -hmm. Right, mommy ruined all of this. Yeah, and I and I lost my cool Mm -hmm. because I I wasn't expecting it, and then I Mm -hmm. felt badly that I hadn't even expected it, and I hadn't Mm -hmm. prepared for it. You know, so Mm -hmm. I was I was upset with myself. I was upset Mm -hmm. with what had happened, Mm -hmm. and it came out with me expressing. Um, anger and frustration toward her, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which she, she didn't know what to do with that. You know, okay. I mean, she felt awful, but she didn't really know why. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but But it was because of what I was expressing to her. And just a simple, you know, it took me another hour or two to go, you know what, this is not the response that helped anyone. It didn't help mm-hmm. me, it didn't help her. And it really didn't have anything to do with something purposeful that she did to, you know, to make this a bad situation. And so I can just respond differently. Right. And uh, my sister happened to be around at the time. And I, w- I was like, Celeste, I'm sorry. I lost my cool. I really <laughs> didn't need to. It was just flowers. It's not mm-hmm. a big deal. And we kind of mm-hmm. laughed about it at that point. My mom, too. And, mm-hmm. I, you know, I apologized to her and we moved on. But I really did have to do this perspective shift. Yeah. From that mindset as a parent or as a teacher to this is a different sort of relationship, you know, Mm -hmm. and and my role is different. I'm not trying to get you to be better. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to help you stay engaged and, you know, uh, fulfilled, feel fulfilled. Mm -hmm. And if it means ripping out a few flowers, then it means ripping Mm -hmm. out a few flowers. It's not a big deal.
1: Yeah, that's a beautiful example. Yeah, and I definitely hear that from the caregivers that I work with, it, it's it's kind of like this initial kind of hump that you have to get over and of acknowledging that the reality is shifting and in this individual and like the behaviors and the memories and the cognition, it, it's changing in ways that are different from you know, the ways that we think and, and process things. And that can be, yeah, that can be really di- difficult, um, for people to you know, wrap, wrap their heads around, but I, yeah, your response is natural. I think all of us have that response and it's something that we, we learn and we, we grow, you know, caregiving is a growth, growth process, just as parenting is, but mm. you're right. It, it's, it's different, um, in the sense that there is a, a, a trend of decline as opposed to um, in the individual dementia as opposed right. to yeah, being able to teach and 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 learn in the same way as with children. right Yeah
0: so th- I, I know that research projects should follow specific protocols <clears throat> mm-hmm. uh, and those protocols will help ensure ethical practices. Um, that you get relevant results that are respected by the scientific community when you're publishing. So, so what are some of the protocols that you've developed to help ensure that this project is successful?
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, so this is a huge, a huge thing for researchers. Um, we have, um, well, basically all universities that are involved in research and any organization like a medical center that's involved in research has um, what's called an institutional review board we call it the irb for short and these are boards that are made up of different individuals at the university also i believe there's a community member that's on the board um, that have diverse backgrounds and perspectives that review every single study protocol so prior to us being able to initiate Anything that we do um, any participant contact, for example, we go through an application process where we submit our whole study protocol. Um, to this board and it's actually a lengthy process they review it very thoroughly and oftentimes we as researchers are sent back um, things we need to change or revise before ultimately it gets approved, and I mean this is as nitty gritty as the size of the font um, of what you're highlighting on your research posters or flyer sometimes, right? Mm-hmm. Like we have to make sure that we're not being coercive and like saying $50 and huge font on the right, flyer, right. right? Like we have to make sure that's not the primary focus. Um, and so there's just lots of things that they look for to make sure our protocols are ethical um, and one Piece of that is um, the informed consent. And so generally, in a research study that's doing human, human subjects work, interacting with um, participants, that's not just a survey based um, study. Generally, we go through what's called an informed consent process that highlights um, all the basic overview of the study, what are the benefits to the participant? What are the potential risks? And so that's a big thing that we do is um, review that with our participants prior to entering into any study participation to make sure that our participants um, are clear on what's going to be happening and understand any risks that may be involved. So this process can look a little bit different, especially when individuals with dementia are included. Um, Oftentimes, we might get the actual written consent from a caregiver um, on their behalf, but we still want them to verbally say yes or nod their head to agree to participate, or we won't continue um, because we want to make sure that individuals are agreeing um, to participate in our study. And so um, how we kind of make sure that these ethical procedures um, happen is every single member of a research team from the undergraduate student who is just doing a couple hours a week to the lead investigator go through pretty extensive training um, to on research ethics and, and protocols. So every single member on the team that's going to have any role in the study is going to go through that training. Um, as I said, we discuss the protocol with our participants so they understand what they're getting into and um always always participation is voluntary so we let our participants know you know you can end at any time you can skip over any question you don't feel comfortable answering but sometimes it's a little hard as a researcher because we want our questions answered but yeah um our participants have the autonomy to to participate in the way that they feel comfortable um and then i think one way that i try to do this in in my studies as well is To have a multidisciplinary team, so I think research is increasingly going in this direction. But it's not always effective to have like an entire team of psychologists or an entire team Mm -hmm. of biologists or sociologists or whatever it may be. Different um, people with different training backgrounds bring different perspectives, and I think it's important that these unique perspectives come together in a research team and. Can bring up maybe different questions or thoughts or ideas that the other researcher maybe wasn't considering increasingly in the grants that i'm putting in. um, uh, So yeah i'm in a kind of as this one grant is ending i'm i'm in a kind of grant writing season of trying to bring in more funding to continue this work and one of the things that we do is also have something like an advisory board where. Um, maybe a caregiver and an individual with dementia might sit on that advisory board and attend some of our study meetings um, and give us their perspectives. Um, I think I've learned a lot from doing just community presentations where I go out into the community to a senior center or what have you and give a presentation on my work and I'm always surprised that the questions maybe that the people in the audience have are different from what I thought was most interesting or you know um, Im- important, and so uh, I think it's really important that we bring these different voices into the work that we're doing. And I think there's more and more focus on making sure that all this, all stakeholders are at the table when these studies are um, being initiated to make sure that we're doing things in. In ethical ways and in ways that are comfortable and appropriate, and et cetera. So, yeah, I, one of the studies I'm I'm working on, we're planning to use like a lab space that's on campus that's kind of like an apartment style lab. And so we brought in an individual living with dementia and the care partner into the lab and just gave them a tour and walked around and um, got a sense from them on would they feel comfortable in this space or what would their concerns be, okay. their questions, and incorporating them in the process so that... When we would actually initiate the study, we have a better way of going about things. Um, so th- that's kind of some of some of the things that we do. Um, but I, it's certainly not an exhaustive exhaustive list. But those well, are some of the things.
0: We I don't know that sounds. It's probably not exhaustive, but it sounds uh, <laughs> intricate and complex. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, so. Speaking of which, you you have to get these quantitative and qualitative results for this study. You've got Mm -hmm. a team, you've got the participants, et cetera. Mm -hmm. How many people are involved?
1: Yeah, it can vary a lot. It can vary a lot from team to team and the type of research that you're doing. So I actually, because I'm kind of a um, still early career and I'm still building my team, I probably have one of a smaller team, relatively speaking, too. Um you know others in my department but I mean on my team for example there's probably six or seven faculty that are involved um, in the project and then we have um, I have like a, a data analyst who's someone who graduated with a master's in statistics that helps um, on the team I have like a fi- five undergrads who are on the team um, currently so and then some teams will have like a study coordinator who's specifically managing that particular study when, um, cause oftentimes a faculty are juggling kind of multiple grants at the same time. Mm-hmm. And so there's different staff that are on each particular project. But for me at this point, my team is predominantly made up of the faculty who are on the grant, um, some, some staff, and then, I mean, at universities, one of our um, missions is to teach students um, research and that process as well. And I love working with students. And I think, you know, our participants do too, generally. So I always have a handful of undergrads any given semester that are part of the team as well.
0: I would think that there would be some stylistic differences that are geographic in Mm -hmm. nature because of the various cultures that we have i mean you know the midwest oh, attitude versus mm-hmm. the east coast attitude you know mm-hmm. i mean there are you know in my experience there are some generalities that um, aren't just stereotypes they do kind of tell a story about how the culture of that place uh, impacts exactly. people and how they interact with each other
1: Mm-hmm. And racially and ethnically as well. Um, yeah, there's some cultural differences there. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the goals of like my next grant that I'm, I'm working on that would stem from this data is to do this style work in a more nationally representative sample to make sure that the styles we're seeing are representative of diverse cultures and um, different racial and ethnic groups as well. Cause mm-hmm. yes, there definitely are differences with those things.
0: Mm-hmm. What other questions are you hoping to research in the future?
1: Yeah. So I have a couple, I mean, well, <laughs> you're always thinking of new ideas yeah. and things. One of my interests I'm hoping that I'll get to in the future is to also think about the styles of professional caregivers. So um, whether that be like in-home or long-term care um, care providers, I'd also be really interested in thinking about their care styles and how that relates to outcomes for them and also the the patients within their care. Um, So that's kind of a down the line area of interest. And then I think um, another um, idea I'm I'm working on now is also thinking more broadly about caregiving networks. So a lot of studies in um, caregiving research Look, and including my own, because it's it's often the easiest thing to do is to look at the primary, the primary caregiver. So we consider that kind of whoever is the person who has primary responsibility for the care of this individual. So oftentimes that's a spouse or an adult child, but it could be another family member or friend, um, depending on the situation. But the reality is that's kind of an artificial, way of studying caregiving because most people are not caregiving in isolation. Um, They have a a network of people who are assisting in various ways. So I know you mentioned, for example, like a sister or there might be um you know a a grandchild or a you know a cousin or whoever it may be in your network that are assisting in different ways. Um, So some some people take on a variety of responsibilities in care. Some people like their role is they Pick up the groceries for this individual, or they take the you know um, individual to doctor's appointments. Right. Um, so some people specialize in different ways, but this has really been kind of understudied. And so one of my areas of interest is also kind of better characterizing the networks of care and how that also influences outcomes. Um, just with the understanding that studying just one individual in isolation is is missing a big piece of the story. Right. So.
0: Yeah. It's interesting. Um, I have a very consistent and reliable, uh, line of support now of mm-hmm. two caregivers who come in to give me a break. Mm-hmm. And, um, the, you know, when I started as my mom's caregiver, that was hard to coordinate because mm-hmm. I couldn't find people. There was the pandemic was in, in a different oh, stage yeah. and so mm-hmm. that influenced it. And then it was just people's schedules and you know, uh, and, and the availability and the like, and, and people would start in a role of caregiving and realize it wasn't for them or, you know, whatever it was. And, Mm -hmm. uh, so now I have this study on Wednesday nights. Um, I have a person who's studying uh, to go into nursing and happens to be a friend of the family. And, Mm. um, and so she's very consistent. And then on Saturdays I have time off, uh, with a person that comes in through a service, so she's a professional caregiver, Mm -hmm. and my mom's response to those people and looking forward to spending time with them has a Mm -hmm. lot to do with why my week goes well. Yeah. Um, Not only am I getting time off, but she's getting interactions with these people who actually care about her, and that she cares about right back, Mm -hmm. and um, that dynamic um, really makes a big difference for her experience week to week definitely, uh, and, and mine as mm-hmm. her main caregiver, you know, mm-hmm. without them, my experience would be completely different. I'm so grateful. Definitely. To have that kind of consistency mm-hmm. uh, and reliability. Mm-hmm. And I realized because it was so tough up front
1: mm-hmm.
0: that it's not easy to have that come together, you know? So I'm, oh, I'm yeah. certain there's a bunch of caregivers out there who are feeling isolated Mm-hmm. and um, and burnt out,
1: mhm De- definitely yeah i i I mean, I'm really glad to hear that you have that support, and I think i I hope that it might encourage other caregivers too, to maybe be open to um having someone come in because I think that can be another challenge is this initial fear of, of someone else coming in or how will the individual with dementia respond and having that routine and having that additional stimulation, I completely agree with you can be so positive for people, but yeah, especially during the pandemic, those sorts of setups were completely disrupted for people. Um, And yeah, it just made it so challenging. And I think even still kind of if you wanna say we're emerging out of the pandemic or what, I don't know, You know, we don't really know where right. we are, but I even still, I think it can be really hard. Um, I did interviews with caregivers um, during, uh, let's see, last year, um, 2021, about pandemic caregiving and and heard that again and again and again from people of how they would be on waiting lists or they would have yeah. someone scheduled to come in and then they couldn't come yeah. and it was just, so, so difficult. So um really hoping we can get back to some normalcy with those supports being available.
0: Right, I agree. Yeah, and, yeah. and uh, when my, my sister and I did a bunch of research, uh, when both of my parents had just been diagnosed with dementia and we were discussing, are we going to provide care for them in their home or are we going to go to an assisted living facility? And we were looking at all the options. And when we talked, that was pre-pandemic, when we talked to care agencies that were do- providing in-home care, they were like, "Oh yeah, we can have a staff person over there." You know, what you, you need five days a week. You, what, what do you need? And mm-hmm. uh, once we got into the pandemic, and you know, situations had changed. My parents were in assisted living. My pet- mm-hmm. dad passed. Then the assisted living wasn't um, a good fit for my mom, isolated anymore. Right. Or- we talked about bringing her back home and getting support. And those those same agencies were like, we don't have anybody. Yeah. Because you know, it, it was yeah. during the pandemic. They didn't, right. they, were, they had a staff shortage.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and so suddenly those organizations that normally would be available to, you know, to provide the resources, well, they just, they couldn't do it.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah. And then friends and family who may come over and help were probably more reticent to do yes. so. Yeah, yeah. So it's a double whammy really. Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So hopefully that won't have to be a research project and we'll, we'll move yeah. past the pandemic, but maybe it'll yeah, have to be hopefully. one of those future things. Mm-hmm. You're studying. <laughs> mm-hmm. I know. Well, Amanda, thank you so much for uh joining today and I really hope that this research project goes well. I'm I'm definitely interested in reading more about the uh caregiving styles that you've already identified and mm-hmm. um how they relate to better outcomes for both the caregiver and the person being cared
1: for. Mhm. So, thank you so much. Yeah.
0: yeah. All right. Have have a good week and take care. All
1: right. Yeah, thank you.
0: All right. Bye. Bye. Well, Jordan, welcome back to the Living with Alzheimer's podcast. Glad to be back. Glad to be back. Yeah.
3: Round two. Round two. Sequel. Still with whiskey. <laughs> this is my first class, just to point out. Okay. <laughs> we cheated. Mm-hmm. One glass of
0: whiskey, two recordings, mm-hmm. and one very uh, curious cat.
3: She's just She's just lonely.
0: Yeah. As long as you don't chew on the cables, socks then you may stay. Mm -hmm. She's really totally into this, though. It's not the typical way things go here. So there's a research professor at University of Michigan that I interviewed about the uh, research program that she's working on to really try to put some numbers on... The best practices for caregivers to take good care of themselves, mm-hmm. so that they can last mm-hmm. uh, and not to get burned to out. Do, yeah, not get mm-hmm. burned out. And uh, you know, so it's a metrics-based mm. program that she's doing, and I, I will be very interested to see you know the outcome of her research. Um, but in your time working in the caregiving space.
3: Mm-hmm. Cause you did that for, did it for a long time. Yeah. 15. You know, yeah. I think the total was around thirteen, fourteen 14 years. Okay. And then I ended up going back into healthcare and got my EMT license and it's, it's still the same, the need for self care. And, mm-hmm. um, you don't want to get burned out. Right. You don't want to get burned out. So I know um, for me,
0: I have found in the past year of being my mom's caregiver, that I definitely need time to myself to to do the things that, mm-hmm. you know, bring me some joy and mm-hmm. also recharge my battery. Yeah. And I get some help by getting some time off. So mm-hmm. Wednesday evenings I have a person who comes in for a few hours. And Saturdays I have yeah. a person who comes in for a few hours. Yeah. And I can I can Schedule around that. Yeah. You know, and that's great. Yeah. I think some people, I think a lot of caregivers don't have that if they're taking care of a family member, Mm -hmm. you know, if they're a professional caregiver, perhaps. Yeah. But I think there are, what I'm hearing from the stats anyway, there are a ton of families who have someone unpaid Mm. with no vacation. (laughs) Full time, time 24, 24 hours, 7. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Taking care of somebody. And I I would not be able to survive that. It would not be sustainable for yeah. me. So, I'm hoping that uh families are listening to that and going, Hey, Mary or Sally or whoever that is that's yeah. been doing this 24-7, mm-hmm. let's make sure she gets a break. Yeah. Because, good Lord, she needs a break. Yeah. Um, but... Other than that, what else did you do?
3: Yeah, I mean, to, to take care of yourself in the midst of all that, a lot to talk about. I feel like when I, um, prior to having kids and being in long term care, I think it was easier to uh, break apart my day. So for me, I was a big reader, I still am, and I did a lot of music, I, I play guitar and. I found ways to just recharge in that way. And I think after I was married and had kids, I think that shifted to um, I needed to talk mm. I needed to talk about my day. And, mm-hmm. um, and I think even in the last when I took care of a buddy of mine who had dementia, even that was it was I hate to say the word draining because it was. And rewarding, but I think one thing I should back up and mention is uh, the the first thing that I had to be okay with was how I felt. Whatever, I, whatever, angry or frustrated, confused, sad, whatever pain you brought into the day, it's okay to feel what you're feeling. Mm-hmm. You got to acknowledge that you are a person too, and you know your needs still matter. In fact, I would even argue, if you're the caregiver, your needs probably matter even more because if you go down, the whole ship goes down. Right. And so you really have to be, you know, in a place where you can just acknowledge, oh man, I, my, what's my heart trying to teach me today? You know about this moment. And so if you're really tired and burned out, don't ignore that. You know, if you're tired and you're just lonely, don't ignore that. It's, it can be lonely taking care of people because mm-hmm. no you know. You, I think when I when I think back to long term care, it's a lot of these discussions. I have with myself in a way because mm-hmm. you're, you're, you're talking to someone who, who kind of gets it, but that's, but that's not what you need. You wouldn't necessarily reach out to someone who has to mention and talk about your day right. every day. Right. You can, it works when you're having a small talk and you're working with a, a person who needs you to be there. But, you know, let's be honest, at some point you want another adult who understands your perspective and your life, your family, your, whatever you're going through and so I would, I, for me to answer your question, I'm, I'm kind of still figuring it out. I'm still okay. figuring it out because I have two kids now and, and, you know, I'm, I'm a single dad and it's the same thing. It's just trying to figure out, you know, what do I need today? And it's, right. it's a daily thing. You don't really ask that on Friday night. Cause you've had all week of hard work and, you know, getting up at whatever a.m. in the morning, getting it going. Um, so to bring it back to, to long term care, it doesn't change. You, you want to acknowledge what you think, or maybe you need. And for me, it was like I want to be heard, I want to be seen, and I need to find ways to be active outside of caregiving. Right. So for me, it was just going to the gym or running or um, reading, but acknowledging it first, mm-hmm. naming it, and being okay with it. Mm-hmm. I always felt bad about needing to recharge. I still do at times. It's weird, you know. You shouldn't feel guilty for needing to slow down, but yeah. And so, then I, you know,
0: sorry for the background oh, okay. noise. That was socks becoming intolerable in the background. <laughs> and you were saying serious stuff about how to take care of yourself and being heard. There
3: you go. Right yeah. there. Yeah. You know, and, and my friends were EMTs and paramedics. They'd tell you, you know, it's, it's, you know, you got to eat. And so you, you work your shifts based on what your life needs and, it can be hard to find that balance, mm-hmm. but you but you have to make time, you know, you make time, you can make time for the things you care about. We all can. We just choose to give ourselves you to know, the thing, you know. I keep coming back though to
0: and I don't want to rag on it too much, mm-hmm. but in my religious upbringing, yeah, there was a lot of stock put into self-sacrifice. Mm-hmm. that. Give, this, me an, give me an you, example. You know, this is the Lord's work. And we need volunteers, you know, that kind of thing, and they would you know there was a lot of arm twisting involved, yeah. and people would serve out of guilt, yeah and uh, you know there, and oftentimes and this happens with almost any organization, you know, there'd be the same half dozen people stepping forward all the time until they yeah. were burnt out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and
3: you know that that is not sustainable either. You've
0: got to give yourself
3: yeah the break and well if your motivation is religious or maybe it's spiritual or both i would i would i would just offer this you know jesus would go to a town as the the scroll or bible would say and he'd heal people and he would leave Mm -hmm. and not everyone got to see him right okay he clearly needed to have a break you know, and, you know, and, and there is mm,
0: conversation about him getting away. Yeah,
3: just, I'm out. Right. Peace, I'm out. Well, where are you going? We're, we're not done here. Well, right. well, I'm done. Yep. What? Yeah. And so I have to imagine whether you believe it to be true or not isn't important. I just think what your motivation, what drives you, hopefully that's a healthy place, mm-hmm. whether it's religious or not. I think the bigger question i go back to then is, well, what do you need? What's your motivation? We'll get you out of bed in the morning. And then, how do you recharge from that thing? Mm-hmm. You know,
0: and and then coming at it from more of a, you know, uh, a non-religious standpoint. Mm-hmm. There were times early on when I was doing the caregiving where I would use the word "should." I should, yeah, whatever, <laughs> right? And I, it would almost be like I was guilting myself into mm-hmm. doing more than I could do, mm-hmm. and. Thankfully, I've been using a counselor, Yeah, you know, I used a counselor, got, I ain't got counseling <laughs> before I made the decision to do this because I really yeah. didn't want to mess it up. Right. Yeah. And so I thought I'm going to have to work with a third party yeah. to figure out, am I really cut out for this mm-hmm. long term? Uh, Am I the right person yeah. to do it long term? And mm-hmm. what do I need to know about me or prepare for me to do it mm-hmm. properly mm-hmm. long term? And so this whole word "should" came up, and my counselor just said, "You need to stop, stop. saying that. Man. You need to stop with stop the word. Stop shooting on should. yourself, man.
3: Yes, yeah. and uh, and that's been very helpful. Yeah, it's amazing how many people do that, and I do it too. Mm-hmm. And I also have a very brilliant. You should word. stop using "should." Yeah, he's <clears> like, <throat> "Wait, stop shooting yourself." Like, what did you just say? He's like, "Stop shooting on yourself." And, mm-hmm. and I had to do a little reading about like, oh. Well, well, it's a mind trap, in a way, and really, what it comes back to again is: if you let your yes be a yes, let your no be a no. Mm-hmm. You know, and I've learned to teach myself that. You know, it's okay to say no, right? And it's equally okay to say yes to something. Um, But if you think you should, it's already like a side no. Mm-hmm. But you're trying to convince yourself why you shouldn't feel bad for saying yes to something you don't really want to do. Mm -hmm. And so to bring it back to caregiving and and self-care, you should, you know, there it is right there. You should always want to, but really, no, you will take care of yourself. Because if you don't, who else is going to do it? Right. Whether you're married or single, I mean, at the end of the day, you, you still are one of the most important parts of this equation is you and your heart. And you have to acknowledge that you have a purpose. You have, say, you have value. You have, you have what you need to be successful. Mm-hmm. And so, if your if your life choice is in, in long term care, which it may be, um, then you have some questions to answer. But they're probably something daily. You know, right? And I need to do it every day, right? And I have to always ask myself, well, what do I need to do? Like, what's my heart today? I was supposed to go to work and I didn't. I took a nap. It was the first nap I have had and. Oh, man, probably like a month. Okay. Just, I went back to bed, and then I went to work, and then I went home and worked out and got my kids, and my day started after that. But I knew if I had just pushed through it, I was like, I'm going to pay for it later. hmm And I, that's the hard part. It's just, you just, you got to find a way. Yep. got to find a way. got to make time for yourself, for and, yourself. And there have been times where mm-hmm. I said to my mom, hey,
0: I just need a minute. Mm-hmm uh and i don't really mean a minute. Yeah, an i hour, mean like, an you hour. know, 30 minutes an <laughs> yeah. hour, right? I'm just going to go close my eyes, mom. She understands that
3: one. Yeah. Even if that's not what i'm going to do. Mm-hmm. It could be i just want to read for a little while or do you, whatever. Do you feel guilty for needing to have a minute? No. Good. I don't. Good. Um now when she is
0: especially in need, i will i mm-hmm. will redirect myself. Mm-hmm even if i need that time off if she's in a space mm-hmm. at that point you know mm-hmm. i can wait mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but i still need that thing yeah you know that that away time but there are times where her needs will outweigh mine yeah and from a i want to take good care of her standpoint mm-hmm. that's the same kind of thing you would do with your kids yeah right yeah it's like hey uh i'm i'm trying to do something here <laughs> But the, you can see
3: that the kid really is in need right now. You're yeah. gonna probably shift, yeah. You gotta, if you can, you want to be aware. One thing I, have to, one thing I will say that for me, I've tried to self care without my phone, without a device, mm. and that's that's because I get sucked into something else real quick, and so that is one of my pet peeves for myself is when I try to do my self care, especially after, um, you know, when I was long term care, we we didn't have smartphones the way we mm-hmm. do now. We had some stuff. But it wasn't what it is now, and I think everything wants your attention mm-hmm. and that's just not a good break for your brain right. and, I, and again, I feel it that detention it's easy to check the headlines and say well, well, hold on, you know what am I I need to, I need to just take a sec to decompress mm-hmm. you know, and that is for me, it's better without having my phone um and so that's one thing I would encourage people to think about is when you when you do self care, what are you using to self care you know get off Facebook, you know, it'd be there tomorrow. Yep. It'd be there tonight. it's not going anywhere. Um, yeah. I have really mm-hmm. reduced my
0: use of Facebook. Yeah. I mean, I'll get on and yeah. I want to see what people are doing, but mm-hmm. it's kind of like
3: jump on, jump off. It's a tool. And I, I, I like tools, mm-hmm. you know, but I keep them in the garage. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, like I don't, they're not always with me and, and you know, props to Facebook, but for what they've been able to keep people in, in touch. it's amazing. Mm-hmm. But I still think there is a healthy and unhealthy way to use it. Mm-hmm. Um, again, we we need to be as organic as we can with ourselves, mm-hmm. you know, let's not get ourselves here. And I think the most important part of that is asking ourselves, well, what do I really need right now? You know? And for me it's just some alone time or I'll call somebody, you know, have the actual conversation. Like not through text. Right. Remember remember that? Remember when we used to call yeah. and I mean, those things to me still ring true. And that's what I do. That's why I'm here now. Right. Talking to you. Self-care day, you know, and it really is. It's been great. Well, and
0: and I really appreciate you giving your insight because my intention is to continue doing this as long as my mom's around. And Mm. especially now that we've been, you know, helping out at this memory care unit in the assisted living uh, facility We volunteer we've mm-hmm. seen some people who are you know in their 15th year of dementia yeah you know yeah that's hard to hear that yeah so i mean that that could be i mean mm-hmm. the um alzheimer's association's you know has gathered mm-hmm. a whole bunch of stats mm-hmm. and the, the average is once diagnosed with alzheimers the average life expectancy is 6 years yeah but you know, then they'll tag on there, but some people will live 20 uh, beyond their diagnosis. Mm-hmm. And my mom is so
3: healthy. Yeah. She really. seems really spunky. She really is. She gave me her recipe. She's kind of a pictures And her flower recipe to grow roses. Right. Oh, this is great. Yep. But that's what you want because that's, that's ambition. And, and that means that she's still in there. And it also means you're doing a good job. you know doing a fine job taking care of your mama. Well. And your mom takes care of you still, too? She does. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. You know, I think we should all be so lucky. I used to always say, When I get to that age, hopefully I'm just gone already and but I don't really feel that way anymore. I I'm ho- hopefully my body and my health is, is good enough to get me there and you know if my brain checks out, I, I hope that, you know, I have someone like yourself to just kinda lean in and, and help me get through my day. Right. Um, life's a beautiful thing. It really is, and I don't think we're supposed to spend it alone. And I don't I think it's hard when you get to be your mom's age because it feels like a punishment. Like, mm. do you do something wrong. Why Why is this happening? You've mm-hmm. given your whole life to, you know, and all of a sudden the end result is this. This is the grand finale. This right. is the thing that, I, you know, this is the best part of it. And now you're deteriorating. So I think it's fair to ask that question. And you should be pissed. I know I was. I still mm-hmm. am. It's just it's not right. It's not right. We, we, I think a natural death is rare, mm-hmm. but I think it's equally okay to be upset about the fact that most of us will check out in a way that's just like, what? Yeah. Like, and what? you've experienced that what? firsthand. Oh my gosh, dude. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, what? How, yeah. did, how the hell did I end up here? You know? Right. And so just, every day is a gift just, and, and that's my, my advice to you and myself. It's just, you know, when I think of music, I'm always thinking of everything being a rhythm. everything's mm-hmm. a flow. Everything kind of has a, And each note, you have space between the note. I'm always talking about that dead air space, but Mm -hmm. that still gives the note before and after it its meaning. And and you know, artistic designers talk about white space all the time, all the time. So you got to allow yourself to have the white space, the space between the notes. Mm -hmm. Allow yourself just to be maybe just okay. I'm not. I'm not where I'm going. I'm not where I was. But but today is a good day. Mm -hmm. You know, and maybe it does feel like. It's the same as the day before. That was the biggest thing that I, I struggled with when when with self care was I knew I couldn't fix I'm a fixer and I couldn't right. I couldn't fix, you know, Dorothy and Elizabeth and mm-hmm. and Beth and Oh man, I so many people but that wasn't my job. My job really was just to be a gift in that moment. Right. And that's something that took me years and years to learn after I was already done with that particular place and so yeah man uh i am slow on learning lessons it's okay you'll be 80 and Mm -hmm. you'll you'll, oh i get it right (laughs) Uh aha right that's what they meant (laughs) i've totally apologized to my kids
0: up front too yeah (laughs) i'm like you know when i'm when i'm uh spewing nonsense and don't know where i am but am you know cranky uh You know, you're just going to have to make decisions for yourself, you know, about what to do with me, because I'm assuming that Mm -hmm. that's a real
3: potential, you know? Yeah. It's good that you are aware of that, but it's okay to also be right where you are and yep. be okay with it and thankfully my mm-hmm. mom is
0: not cranky so i don't have to deal <laughs> nah, with that she's a sweetheart when i when i talk about sustainability for me as a caregiver mm-hmm. and taking care of myself along the way mm-hmm. i'm not having battles every day yeah you know right. she's not physically aggressive she's not emotionally aggressive mm-hmm. and i know that that changes the dynamic completely mm-hmm. uh for the caregivers who have mm-hmm. to deal with those things mm-hmm. um you know, things being thrown or
3: temper tantrums. um. Usually what tends to happen and not, I want to deviate from my discussion too much, but usually what tends to happen is uh, there's a fall. Okay. There's an accident. Mm -hmm. And then the caregiver feels terrible. Mm -hmm. And, you know, mom just busted, busted her hip or leg or something. And then that's usually when like life can get weird. Mm -hmm. And so, but it's easy to want to be a helicopter parent or helicopter caregiver you should let your mom roam freely. Mm-hmm. You shouldn't be at all anxious about what might happen. Right. But it's, but that's usually how it goes. Is there's an accident? You right. know, my my dad has Parkinson's, and part of the reason that he's in a home is because he fell right by himself, and that's usually a life changer. Mm-hmm. But he but he was living life the way he wanted. Right. And so part of me can't be guilty that I wasn't there. And he and I should mention my dad's a different state and so it's not that I can be there anyway but but it's still my heart you know and it's an adjustment mm-hmm. and it's part of that part of life right you know and so for your mama I, I think it's good that she's able to, to, to be mobile without you always having to give right. her a wheelchair or a walker or anything right but I would also offer to you give yourself enough grace that if something were to happen it's okay it's, this is a part of life where she's at mm-hmm. you guys have done a great job having her here you being here is awesome and it's okay. It's yeah. okay. It's just a phase. Mm-hmm. And,
0: we, and we have done things for mm-hmm. safety. I've noticed the railings.
3: <laughs> yeah, the railings. Yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. So double railings to... I feel safer here. Yeah, that's, there you go. There's handholds. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, because she's a fall risk. Um, now she's on... So the- are you... Yeah, well, that's true. All of us are a <laughs> fall risk, right? And falls are
3: bad. Don't fall. This is my big motto, especially yeah. in the winter. Yeah, no falling. I've had a few myself. Yeah. Oh my goodness, oh, it's so bad. on the ice, especially I just people tried to play it off like I was dancing, and then mm-hmm. totally bit it in Myers Park lot last year. I was like, oh my gosh, who saw that? That should be on YouTube somewhere. Like inexcusable. Just yeah. Groceries only... go flying. Not just who
0: saw it, but what damage did it do? You know? <laughs> Ask me next year. I right know, now. right? Because <laughs> you you clunked a knee yeah. or you oh, you know it's so bad. minor concussion or it's gonna, whatever it's going to happen. I, yeah. I would say it's going just plan on that stuff mm. happening at some point. Yeah. I'm I'm a lot more careful now. My daughter worked uh, for a while in a call center where they followed up uh, with head injury patients, mm-hmm. and she just told some of the stories about fall patients. And the repercussions on their lifestyle. Yeah, and that mm-hmm. was when I adopted the no falling rule. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I've been very careful about railings around here because <laughs> because <laughs> of that. Uh, you know, and we installed a railing outdoors because there's a slope uh, that she has landscaped mm-hmm. with some rock stairs, and it's it looked great. Yeah, uh, but it needed a railing. Yeah, and so now there's a railing. Nice. So I feel a lot better about her just roaming around. Good.
3: But good. But I also don't want her taking off uh down the street without yeah. me knowing. So and that's that happens. That, that happened I think two weeks ago in her town where someone came up missing. That happened okay. when people think. Yeah. And so you just So yeah. I I get the, it,
0: man. My next mm-hmm. thing will be a security system mm-hmm. to uh, you know, really help me with the where is she now? Mm-hmm. You know, kind mm-hmm. of thing. There's nothing wrong with that. Right. Nothing wrong with that. So, mm-hmm. but, and that will help me relax, which also is part of the whole self care. Mm-hmm. Just putting some, absolutely, know, some
3: network planning uh, ahead. Yeah. Yep. Just assuming, assuming it's a bad word, but it is kind of what you have to do in terms of, you know, that you just said what would help me feel better mm-hmm. is some more security measures in place. Mm-hmm. That, that's totally fine. And yeah. it's, it's helpful to have the technology to do that now at right. home. That was unheard of back in the day, yeah. And and also, my family has been
0: very supportive, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, and they have helped me, you know, take a long weekend now and then. Mm -hmm. Uh, My partner has been especially helpful, you know. I've told her over and over again that she isn't responsible when she's here, Mm -hmm. Uh, and she appreciates that. But boy, it's good to have her here sometimes, yeah. just, especially just since she's a me. nurse, you know, I mean, can just be by me for a minute. Yep. Just, <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, yeah. she asks the right questions. She interacts with, with my mom, you know, they really yeah. like each other. And, nice. um, you know, so that's so helpful, but without the family and, you know, my partner, mm-hmm. th- this would be a whole different game.
3: Yeah. It'd be hard, it'd be a lot, a lot harder. And yeah. so I'm I'm really thankful you have the support that you have. I remember reading a book about self care and I can't think of the author, but I remember the 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 big take home for me was people who have caregivers need self care but they need their self care self care like you need to have your mm. own version of that take care of you as well, right you know and um that's very true
0: It's not true mm-hmm. one of mine has been bowling. <laughs> I will just go... It's so mindless. You know. I mean, it isn't because I'm like, am I standing in the right spot? It's, it's like golf. You know, you get, there's 50,000 hey, things to think about. Bowling is way more fun than golf, I was uh, yeah. uh, Well, I don't have to chase the ball as much when I'm bowling. <laughs> it, it comes back. back. It comes yes. back. <laughs> Even if it's a gutter ball, it still comes back.
3: I bowl a little. I'm a lefty, and people don't believe me, but there are left-hand balls. Like you, the holes are drilled yeah. different. No one buys it. So you want to know what? I am a right hander, mm-hmm. lefty. I don't get. I, I,
0: I have I'm a backup confused. ball. Uh, I spin my ball backwards for a right hander.
3: Oh. Okay. And so
0: I have a ball that's drilled. Is that for helpful? Left hander. It's but, not. It's not helpful. <laughs> the internet says backup <laughs> balls are not desirable. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. But I love it. It's unique. Nobody else in mm-hmm. the league that I've played in does a backup ball. Interesting. Uh, there's a lot of two-handed stuff now that's come I've seen out that. with the high spin rates and all that. Yeah, that's crazy to it, me. It is. It's fun to watch. But yeah, I have worked on my backup ball. So mm. Instead of, like, everybody wants me to correct it. Do you want to do you want to change to a regular right hand? Mm. Like No, I like my backup ball. Nice. And so I'm just working on perfecting it. But Honestly, to go bowl for a couple three hours just by myself in a lane mm-hmm. and just work on it, mm-hmm. it's totally helpful for my self care. Mm-hmm. It's like I get to take my brain off of everything else, and then I feel refreshed at the end. Yeah, my arm is sore, but you know,
3: <laughs> I I play guitar and I am a lefty, except for guitar. That's interesting. a play righty. Yeah. Okay, and so it's interesting that. And in some way, it's good, because most left-hand guitars cost more, mm. and there's just not as many in circulation. You can just do Jimi Hendrix and flip it over. The upside-down fender. Yeah. <laughs> it's a lot of work, because yeah. you have to still change the strings and the nut. And the... I'll, just, I'll just take to being right-handed. And okay. My teacher was always like, you sure you don't want to just play bass or play it the other way? And they always felt natural to, to play it like a right-handed person. Mm-hmm. Um, the little golfing I did do is I'm a bit antipodextrous, where okay. it feels the same. And then baseball, same. It's always kind of confusing for me. Everybody, okay. Each way felt about equally odd. Interesting. Um, bowling is definitely a hard left. Um, basketball was a hard left. Football was a, not, I don't know. I I didn't get the ball in football. I just tackled people. Okay. So. Well, there you go. You don't <laughs> yeah. have to be right or left handed for that. <laughs> just get the quarterback. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that was my job. You
0: just said school. to be fast. Yeah. Uh that's interesting but yeah so even some of these hobby Mm -hmm. things are and for some people that's knitting i had a neighbor who is a plumber Mm -hmm. uh not that's wrong um hvac okay so air conditioning heating and it's grunt work and most of the guys that are in the hvac space are hardcore man There are men, men. Yeah. And he's taking his breaks knitting in the truck. Wow. And he he got all kinds of crap from his workmates. For knitting. Until he started handing them things for Mm -hmm. their kids and their wives and all that kind of stuff. And then all of a sudden it caught on and and a few other guys started knitting with him. Yeah, But the deal was, is that was how he relaxed. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I find it the crocheting and knitting yeah. that kind of thing more tedious it's mm. probably because I'm no good <laughs> um, <laughs> at it you know but
3: um, you know I thought that was great I can knit he's busting his stereotype can. and chilling out for I himself can. You know? I can so I like my big thing not to get man I'm tired of your listeners uh, planting flowers yeah I plant I love to go buy flowers if I have had a bad day I'll come home with a new plant I think I have, I have, I have maybe 15 different plants in my house now Mm. (laughs) a couple bad days in there but uh but uh, i love to just something about just being in the dirt Mm -hmm. of the earth getting just just dirty and um you know underneath your nails and all just in it and so it's it's been it's been real great and this is something i discovered about myself during like the covid i think my second round of covid i realized there's got to be something other than music and reading and yeah and, and plants are it, yeah, I just figured it's flowers and plants, that's great, yeah, 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 well, it's nurturing something, right? I
0: like living things around and, me, and there's some yeah. payoff to mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. so my mom's my mom's uh family are Tunstra. okay, Dutch, mm-hmm. and uh, I found out recently because I never asked, I was doing some genealogy stuff and finally started thinking, what do these names actually mean? Well, tunstra means near the garden. Mm. I didn't know that. Yeah, and and so I, I forget just the, the like, Dutch last name. Oh, maybe that's why I like gardening. Yeah, you know, but but I don't like vegetable gardening. Well, that's a whole new craft. That's well, but also you gotta eat that. there's squirrels and rabbits. <laughs> yeah, that's a whole and, new craft. And then you have to worry about them or get upset about mm-hmm. them. I just like the flowers. Yeah. Yeah. mm-hmm so yeah, right on, man.
3: Come, maybe I'll take your mom to Horrocks. We have to, to plant some flowers. Yeah, I was gonna say, let me take your mom to Horrocks, a town, it's right yep. in my town, where they have a bunch of really great food that you can buy and take home, or you can go and eat there. But they also have a crazy flower selection. The floral, okay. the, it's 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 amazing. I have not done it's the Horrocks experience zone. yet. It's a it's a bit much. Okay. It's, but it's a good bit much. Okay. You'll be overwhelmed, but in a good way. Cool. Yeah. Well,
0: Jordan, thanks again for joining and talking about self care. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, if, if you have any more tidbits, <laughs> please talk to me after. Yeah. Because we'll I'm it. planning on doing this for a while and I'm going to
3: need help. Yeah, we all do, man. I yeah. got you. All right. I got you. I'll be back. Thanks, friend. Yeah. My pleasure. Appreciate it. Mm-hmm. All right. Yep.
0: Hi again, Mom. How are you? Good. Good. So I was talking with Amanda Leggett, who is a research professor at the University of Michigan, about caregivers, people who take care of people who have dementia, maybe Alzheimer's, maybe some other kind of dementia. And she is researching how the caregivers can take care of themselves while they're doing their job of giving care to someone with dementia and you and I have been doing this now for more than a year where I've been your caregiver and you know we go week to week with activities for you and I try and keep your calendar straight and keep you fed on schedule for sleeping and all that kind of stuff but I also have to take care of myself, right? And so I've been doing some things that I think are helpful for me to stay in good health physically and emotionally. And I wondered how you felt about some of those things. So for instance, one of the things we do together is yoga, right? And that's good for you, but it's also good for me because I get some of the same benefit, right? The breathing, relaxing, working on a little bit of muscle tone. We don't do real strenuous yoga, but it does help. Mm -hmm. And that seems to be good for you also.
2: Yeah, I've enjoyed it.
0: Yeah. What else do you think caregivers should be doing for themselves to stay well you know when we go volunteer at assisted living we're working in the memory care units, and those staff that are there work with those people all week long what do you think they could do to take good care of themselves while they're doing their jobs
2: I don't think I know enough of the details of their their work to speak openly about what they are doing. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> the one day we had was it horses?
0: Yeah, we had horses. Glad you remember that. That's yeah. right. They had horses at the assisted living facility for the people in the memory care. Did the staff appear to be enjoying the horses also?
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and and that was a good thing. And so are they stopping to look and say, oh, he's doing something different. And then asking questions. So there's some communication between the two of them. Okay. That'd be great.
0: So in that case, staff helping each other out could be a useful thing. And maybe for those people who are caregivers who don't have someone that they work alongside, they're doing it on their own, maybe the idea of doing an activity that you would both enjoy mm-hmm. the, the caregiver enjoys and the person who's being cared for yeah. also enjoys, like the horses. In in our case yoga. We've done a lot of activities together that we both like. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking also about some other things that I do that impact you. So I take some time off for myself during the week. Usually each week I have Wednesday evening off and Saturday, most of Saturday off so that I can go do my own thing. Right. And that means someone else has to come in to give you the caregiving at that time. So on Wednesdays, Emily comes, and on Saturdays, Carrie comes, and that's typically the way it goes. Um, how does that work for you? Is that...
2: Oh, that works well. Okay. Um, I've gotten to know them well mm-hmm. and uh, enjoy them both. Mm-hmm. And I enjoy those girls.
0: Yeah, and they're consistent. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so that really helps, I think. I'm thinking that if it was always somebody different...
2: That would be hard.
0: That would be hard for you. So I might be taking good care of myself, but that might be really difficult for you. Any other ideas about how caregivers can take care of themselves?
2: I, I think that's a good way to put it. Do we ever... Walk in. Of course, we we address the person that that wants that needs to be in a place where where she or he could be take care of his own needs mm-hmm. or her own needs, mm-hmm. and if she needs, if that person needs to, um, then maybe. They need to come up with a list of their own.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay.
2: And then share that with the person that they're caring for. Because mm-hmm. I know that as a babysitter long ago, mm-hmm. there were times when the mother would come in and give me this list mm-hmm. of things. That they're going to do this, this, and this. And didn't tell me why. Okay. Or, um, the time, and what do I do when that time is disruptive
0: mm-hmm.
2: because they they're not feeling like they're ready to go to bed, right? You know, so it's stuff like that that you have to sit down with the person and say, "Look, I like being here with you, and most of the time, you really get along with me, and I'm with you." Mm-hmm. And, uh, there's one area that I think neither of us do well together Mm. and then share what that is.
0: So you would recommend that caregivers communicate their need. Yes. Okay. So if I say, Hey mom, I need a break for 15 minutes. You're okay with that? Oh yeah. Okay. And then you kind of occupy yourself. Hi, I'm glad you're adding to the conversation. <laughs> She's purring contentedly.
2: Well, she got her way. Yeah, she you knew she was away. on the other side of the door. It's true, she did get her way. <laughs> She's pretty darn smart, mm-hmm. is what she is.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's okay when I ask for a break.
2: Oh yeah. Okay. And the two girls that. We use. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we've done that frequently.
0: Right. They come almost every week. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that works out well, because they have a good relationship with you. Okay, Socks. I'm going to put you down now. (laughs) Thanks, (laughs) man.
2: You're welcome.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Living with Alzheimer's. Please visit the Living with Alzheimer's website at lwalz.com, where you can subscribe to the show and find all the resources we discuss in podcast episodes. We'll see you next time on the Living with Alzheimer's podcast.